From climate change, to DEI and social justice, to economic inequality and workers' rights, a range of global challenges are at the forefront of people's minds. As we emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, business leaders are looking for guidance on how to respond, how to do better not just for their shareholders, but for their people, their planet, and the broader communities they're a part of. There's no shortage of ideas on what is needed, but very few companies have succeeded in putting those ideas into practice. As part of Intentional Futures' own stakeholder-centered strategy initiative, CEO Michael Dix is embarking on a journey, a series of conversations with business leaders on what's to be done. Join us as we hunt for the how. Hey, Chris. Good to have you back. Hey, Michael. It's good to be here. I'm excited for our conversation today. Yeah. Today, we're going to talk uh, about driving systems change broadly and equitably and the important, often unsung role that field building and field builders play. Our guest is Leah Farnham, who's been leading equitable systems change at the Bridgebank Group, which is a global nonprofit advisory firm for more than a decade with a focus on education, early childhood, racial equity, and field building. Uh, Leah, your recent work on field building raises important questions and potential implications for not only the philanthropic world, but also the business community. And uh, central to your work is the notion that large-scale impact can't happen without coalitions and people or organizations work in the background to bring diverse voices together, i.e. the field builder. Uh, and you've expanded the conversation to not only include what kind of policies and structures and changes can be explored, but the importance of taking a deeper look at how large-scale impact can be approached and, and affected. Um, I thought we might start with a pretty simple question. I, I had been aware of field building as a concept for a long time, but until I got introduced to you and your work and started looking into it, I had never heard of or thought about the field builder as a role. So let's start there. Just help us understand definitionally what these mean and the role that they actually play in driving larger change. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me here and, and inviting me into this, this conversation. Um, and as you already started with, as, as context, you know, at Bridgeband, we're working towards societies characterized by equity and justice. And it's clear that our biggest social problems are systemic. Um, you know, inequities in education, in health, in criminal justice, these are systems comprised of people and policies, organizations, processes, you know, and we're not seeing positive, equitable outcomes. And we're not going to, I use this phrase, scale our way out of these complex problems. Um, I was actually recently listening to an interview that Eric Schmidt did, and he said something like, wouldn't it be amazing if there was an app that could address addiction or homelessness or inequality, and tech just isn't working on that stuff? And he said, that's because we don't know how to solve these problems yet. And in indeed, uh, and we've been researching, as you noted, what does it really take to get to massive social change? And this idea of field building is so key. And in our research, we saw that often behind the scenes, um, often not seen by philanthropy or by folks doing the work are these field builders who are, you know, pardon the cliche, but it's true, they are making the whole greater than the sum of parts. And I like this metaphor to think about what these organizations do, because um, it is not the typical nonprofit role or nonprofit that we think of doing direct service work. I like this metaphor of the nerve center because they're, they're these hub organizations and leaders who are mobilize, mobilizing and galvanizing a bunch of other leaders and organizations to play different complementary roles to solve these complex systemic problems. So that could be, oh, we need strategic communications. Who's doing that? Here's a moment. Let me pull those folks in and connect with the researchers and the philanthropic community. So organizing all of those actors to together solve these multifaceted complex problems. I'm so curious. So like you're beginning to paint a picture for us about field builders why this is research was it absent before is look why put that in the spotlight just so that we can get a sense 
in our journey, in my personal journey, and I've been at Bridgebay now for 15 years, and I would say in our journey in the sector, um, in many ways, we started with this obsession around, you know, what is the uh, the innovative programmatic solution? You know, what is the the charter school doing that's actually like solving high quality education? How do we get that to many more places? But these problems are so, as I said, they're systemic, they're multifaceted. And so as we really started to look at examples where we have seen population level change is a phrase we like to use as well. Like we're actually seeing at a massive scale, these problems being addressed and solved. We saw that it was never just one organization at play, right? And, and so really trying to understand, well, what are these coalition strategies, these field building approaches? And we like the word field because it it kind of is this, this more massive ecosystem view on these problems. And so we started to see like, okay, if we look at, you know, teen pregnancy in the 90s or teen smoking, some of these efforts at massive social change, it was these whole, it was groups and coalitions coming together with an aligned vision. And often these, again, you know, these unseen nerve centers helping to harmonize the work of all of those actors to solve these problems. And I will say, I love your question, Chris, because we like, this is not the prevailing paradigm in our sector for what it takes to get to change. This isn't well-funded work. Um, and so for us, this research is so important so that it actually can be seen and understood and sufficiently funded. Am I hearing you right that um, there's a role that field builders play and we want to learn a little bit more about them, but that there might be a fallacy here around the idea that you can scale one solution that really is going to have an effect um, on a larger impact? Because I feel like that's typically like the idea is, we, like you said, like we found a school, let's replicate that nationally. We found a, a, an instructional model, let's replicate that nationally. I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, I just want to check that out. Is that part of what you're, you're, you're getting at here? Is it one solution is not something that can be scaled and, and fits everyone? That's right. And we, you know, we don't have examples of that ever working. And how cool if we did. Um, but, but we don't. And yet that work is really critical because in our research on what does it really take to get to population level change, a shared knowledge base and like innovation and learning and research on what does it really take is part of it. And so those, um, you know, programmatic or point solutions, there's different ways we might think about um, those more narrow lenses on problems or specific programmatic approaches play a huge role in helping us understand what, what could work. What could work for whom and why? And we need to study that and understand it as part of a field's knowledge base. But then as you look at these systems and massive population level change, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine how one really innovative approach is going to undo what inequitably designed systems are doing in terms of outcomes. You know, think about this pandemic moment, like amazing to have, you know, innovations in health and in healthcare. But I think this moment is revealing for us just how complex health is and healthcare and public health. And gosh, we need the strategic comms folks actually helping shift the narrative. We need public will building. We need research, you know, in a huge way. And so all of these different folks coming together um, to, to come up with that more multifaceted coalition approach. I love that word coalition because it's the power of the many. Yeah, I mean, that resonates with me that the complexity of these problems is so great that you need you need to sort of encourage the ecosystem and coordinate the ecosystem in order to make progress uh, deploying lots of different solutions. What I don't quite understand is where do these field building organizations come from? How do they get power to do what they're going to do behind the scenes or in the spotlight? So maybe you could talk a little bit about some examples um, so we can get a sense for, you know, what are we talking about? How do they deploy themselves? How do they, because it sounds like they're quarterbacks almost, and you would think that means they'd be really prominent and have a lot of power and influence, but um, I can't really see that clearly. Yeah, and um, we've studied this in a couple ways, and this year actually are embarking on a big research project on what we like to call the origin stories. Um, make it sound a little more mysterious, perhaps uh, exciting, <laughs> but because uh, we're really curious about that. And we've we've observed different paths and different archetypes for the ones that we've studied so far. And certainly there is one path where like, I think about Roseanne Haggerty's work. Um, she works in homelessness 
and has started and is now running an organization called Community Solutions. But she started as a direct service provider in Manhattan, working on homelessness, running a homelessness agency. And she had this moment, she was like, you know, had the government contracts, was providing the services, but she was like, wait, I'm one of a dozen, more than a dozen providers like this. We're not seeing fewer you know, people experiencing homelessness year in, year out as we do this work. There's a much bigger thing at play here. What what would it look like to actually pivot and look at root causes of homelessness? And what would it take for me uh, and many others, because it would take many, again, to to look at those root causes and address the, the broader systemic issues around homelessness? And so here's this example of an origin story of like a direct service provider with this innovative, you know, by many metrics working programmatic model. But then she was look she kind of she has this this metaphor story she talks about kind of looking up at the broader field and saying, oh, like when I stop looking down and look up, um, you know, there's more that I want to do here. And so she's evolved her approach, her work, and has has taken on this role as more of a field builder. But I think you put your finger on something really important. Michael, which is you have to have trusting relationships and ability to communicate and translate and work across tons of different groups within a field from the philanthropic funder table to the local government table to the federal government, ta- you know, and the research table. And um, and that's really hard. And so these field builders have just a set of superpowers that we're you know, amazed by um, and are not common and in many ways these feel like like unicorn things but one of them is that ability to hold and and develop trusting relationships um and i think you know back to your question of origin stories one of the other origin stories is sometimes funders start these organizations so philanthropic funders from their vantage point will see a need for these field building approaches and they and of course there are pitfalls with this because of power dynamics but funders will try to seed or, you know, elevate a certain organization in the field. Um, And we're interested to study when does that work? When does it not work? Because it feels a bit like the the crowning the prince, you know, pitfall. Um, And the field needs to embrace the role of the field catalyst or the field builder. All the other actors need to see the value in that role. And, And in our research, it would, you know, we've seen that that's really just through trusting relationships. Like we heard multiple times, it's like the pick up the phone and I can call you in this moment kind of relationship um, that many of these field catalysts hold with with that diverse group of stakeholders. So is that something that um, when you take a look at some of maybe like the successes that field builders have had in some of the movements that they've been a part of, uh, is that just the result of them being historically in the right place at the right time with the right level of relationship and network? Or are there organizations that purposely choose as a strategy, right, to develop really important relationships because they know that at some point in time, something's about to to take off and they want to be there to support it? Like, how does that, how does that move from just happenstance to intention? Yeah. And here, I think it's both. Like in our research, we saw there certainly were moments of ripeness um, or opportunity. And it, like back to teen pregnancy in the 90s, President Clinton from the presidential podium said teen pregnancy is the social problem of our times. And so then you can imagine as a nonprofit sector, everyone's like, whoop, okay, there's funding coming, like, let's mobilize what's going right. And um, the campaign to prevent um, unintended teen pregnancy came from that work in that moment. And there was, to be clear, there was a lot of groundwork in the reproductive health field for years before that, that in many ways helped that moment to have the momentum it did. Um, And so there's certainly something about what's going on in our society, about what folks in power are saying and doing. And like, I'll build from that point about power, there are ways that many of us can and should be shaping and creating opportunity and momentum around these issues and around these topics. Um, philanthropic funders have a huge role in defining what the agenda is and you know where there's momentum. Um, and, and so I think it is both and that intentionality is really important. And the other thing I would say is keeping close to the ground and really understanding in communities what matters right now what are the assets that communities hold? What are the agendas that folks want to, to push forward and where there's opportunity to make progress? Because um, otherwise field catalysts are like trying to cut what, a catalyst has to catalyze something, right? Like that's chemistry. Uh, and so borrowing from that metaphor, it's like there's gotta be that raw material um, and the work starting for a field catalyst work to really take root um, and, and to take off from that point. 
Chris, this makes me think about another kind of broad concept that I wonder if uh, clarifying and getting Leah's perspective on could be really helpful, which is systems change and just what does it actually entail? What does it look like? And if you know if you're going to measure that, try to detect did it or did it not happen? How would you approach that? Well, and I'll I'll admit we actually didn't want to use the phrase systems change when we started this research because uh, when we started maybe four or five years ago, uh, interviewing folks and and really trying to understand what does it take to get to massive change, people were using the phrase systems change in a hundred different ways, um, and and in the literature, like reading the literature, it's used in a bunch of different ways. There's kind of a wonky academic framing for it. There's a more practical framing for it, and so. But now, I think in this multi-crisis context, in this you know pandemic moment that we're still in, I think the phrase has actually taken on new life, and so we're embracing it. Um, and and I think, as I said at the outset, you know we recognize that these massive social problems are systemic, and that that doesn't just mean public systems; it's beyond that. It's actually our mental models, our mindsets, our biases as individuals and as part of a society. But then also, yes the policies, the practices, like all of the things that, like I work deeply in the education field. Education is like a system of systems. You look at the federal level, the district level, the school itself is a system with its own set of policies and practices and leaders and organizations at play. Um, And so, you know, I think for us, um, as embracing this phrase systems change, we're really just embracing that these are complex adaptive problems and that systems lens takes us to a place of, okay, like we've got to move away from the innovative silver bullet, um, which like, gosh, I wish that, I wish we had an example of that ever working. We don't. Um, and, and move to these multifaceted strategies. Um, so and I'm curious for you all, like you, you all have studied this in different ways. Is, is, is there ways that that notion of systems change is taking root in your work? And, and as you thought about ideas like stakeholder capitalism? Oh, for sure. Um, and let me just let me just say that, you know, we're the ones that like to ask a lot of the questions here, Leah. But no, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> this is a hard one. I feel like there's no right answer. I, I need more perspectives. <laughs> No, I think, well, so what I love about what we're hearing and, you know, Michael's question right now and then yours right right after is um, there's a way that we think about it. I don't know if it's um, if it's correct, uh, but we're trying to see if it's useful and we kind of test it out. And so it might apply to a field builder. But, um, you know, we think about like, you know, this shift from it's not really called this, but closed loop thinking, right, where it's like I'm going to think about change within you know, what can I as an organization do? Um, and then how are we going to transform things within, you know, my four walls? And I'm going to work with a community and I'm going to put that community in quotations um, to make some real change. And um, and there's this shift that we've been exploring to ecosystem thinking. So what does that look like? And, you know, if you're going to like kind of unpack that and scaffold some of the thinking that gets layered into what might drive how you not only think, but what you might do, that might include beginning to understand who are the stakeholders that have, let's say, a success or a mutual success in the impact or the business that you're engaging in. Um, you know, you might actually ask the question, which ones are the most important, but I don't know. That might lead to some bias. Um, you might ask the question, um, you know, what do they value? Uh, and that's really important. Is there a, I don't want to use the word value proposition, but like what, what's, what is what is it that is of value for each of these groups in relationship to this mutual success? And then you might actually engage in some kind of process to understand how is that value being exchanged or where is it not? Where is it just being extracted um, by a group and um, beginning to make that visual, beginning to not only make that visual, but be in concert with these um, with these communities. And that's where I feel like the coalition building gets to come from. That's where you get to build the will, the credibility, the authenticity of saying, I want to understand um, how this is working and not working so that we can actually take real action towards something bigger. Um, That's how we think about, um, you know, the beginnings of, let's say, ecosystem thinking and stakeholder centered approach to, um, in our world, maybe just company building, but it extends out. And um, so I, I would, I would, offer that I have a question for you with that. So I don't know how much that aligns with what a field builder is or does, but I'm curious, you mentioned field builders have, for example, the characteristic of 
of listening, they have to be able to build coalitions. Um, what are those characteristics of field builders? Just so that like we can begin to name them and see how they drive up with some of what Michael and I are beginning to learn too. And I love what you shared. That that really resonates. Um, and in particular, this notion of you know where uh, where is value being extracted? Um, and we sometimes use this this question as we apply the systems lens and think about systems change, which is looking at this system, looking at this problem, which is indeed systemic. Who is least well served? You know, who is actually farthest from opportunity, and what are they experiencing and saying and needing right now? Um, and field builders are amazing at connecting these dots and actually pulling up and drawing in those voices. And, and so, you know, to your question of characteristics, or we might say superpowers of these field builders, the first one I would name is this deep understanding of the problem and ecosystem. And that, that deep understanding necessarily takes field builders to the ground level to those least heard, right? And then the flip side of that deep understanding is holding a vision for equitable and durable Pop, again, population level change. And that's often about through, again, through those trusting relationships, building alignment across a diverse set of stakeholders about what is the ultimate aim? What are the priorities to get there? And, you know, I will note, we are so intentional by saying equitable and durable population level change, because in our study of, of past field building efforts, a pitfall of some was that equity was not explicitly at the center um, and ended up leading to some exclusive initiatives that left out some of those key constituents that, Chris, you were referring to. You know, so even again, back with teen pregnancy in the 90s, um, which peaked in the 90s and then significantly decreased through one of these coalition strategies led by one of these nerve centers, we saw incredible progress. But as you unpack the data, significant racial disparities still persisted. Um, and, you know, the other superpower that I would name is we, we use this phrase, an organizer's mindset. You know, these nerve centers, these field builders are organized and they're organizers. They see they see these roles and assets across the field and help to align, create connective tissue, you know, coordinate. I also love the word harmonize. Like you picture the choir and like they're, you know, able to actually create harmony across the work. Um, and, you know, that's really important, especially in nonprofit work where sometimes, you know, we see each other as competitors because it's hard. We're competing for scarce resources. We're competing for scarce, you know, opportunities in the limelight to share about the all. It feels like we're operating with scarcity um, and field builders, you know, excellent field builders are able to, you know, make the pie bigger and, and actually remove some of those barriers and constraints that make us operate with scarcity and actually see the power and potential if we come together. There's definitely um, alignment with this notion of just a, an abundance mindset and say, hey, actually, if we work together, we can generate more overall value uh, as opposed to fight over what we can currently see that's being generated within the system. Uh, and so many of the characteristics you're talking about just strike me as uh, What's necessary, even if you're a good leader and you're trying to actually, you know, whether you're running a business or a nonprofit or whatever, whether you're really trying to understand and tend to the needs of your ecosystem. Um, one thing that I'd love to probe a little further on, back to this notion of systems change, you, you mentioned uh, durability, which I think is uh, super important, obviously, because you don't want uh, things to just snap back to the way they were. But what have you learned about um, what drives durable change? Is it like a, a societal mindset shift where suddenly people think very differently about a topic and even think that was possible? And now that's going to mean behaviors and policies follow suit. And thus, we will actually have shifted significantly in the problem space. Uh, for example, what, what have you been learning? And you know, what does that tell you about how to do the work well? Well, that's a great example. And what you said really resonates. And I love, I think I, you know, mentioned mental models before, and we use um, you know, often Danella Meadows framework of the iceberg. And at the bottom of that iceberg are those mental models that you don't see at the surface level of these problems. And so durability certainly like necessitates us looking to those mental models, looking to root causes, looking to prevailing narratives um, in our society, looking to who has power and who doesn't. These are hard, messy questions. You know, get your average 
perhaps business leader, but certainly philanthropic donor in the room. And they're like, e yuck, those are yucky questions, <laughs> right? And they are, they're hard. Um, but durable change requires us to go there and it requires us to take time with these questions. Um, and so, you know, I, as an example, I, I think about um, teen smoking actually, where in many ways the efforts, you know, now a few decades old, led us to significant reduction in teen smoking rates in the U.S., significant, almost to zero. Um, and and then, um, you know, e-cigarettes come about. Vaping is now a thing. And so there's, there's always going to be the next threat um, if we're not actually getting to some of the root causes and getting to some of these mental models. And those things change. Like, we're humans and we're in a dynamic society, right? And, and so... Um, I don't, I'm not going to pretend to say like, here's what I would have done differently with respect to teen smoking. But one of my, my, you know, questions would be, what if, um, what if we had actually engaged this question of those least well served? Um, we know that those furthest from the work at the time were our indigenous communities, our native teens, our teens of color. What if we had actually centered these young, young people and communities in the work and actually had them tell us what would durable change here look like? Um, what do you need from the health system? What do you need from the education system? You know, like, and so it's a different way in to solving problems than we're accustomed to. Yeah, working working at what some might perceive to be the edges, make that the center, and you could actually maybe get further faster and more durably. Well, and it centers, um, you know, a really important question, which is it, we're talking about centering equity, but um, centering, you know, more of a critical analysis, because I think when I take a look at the way that investments have been made and approaches to trying to, you know, attack impact, if you will, and trying to really make a, uh, make a shift, I feel like folks kind of do this 80, 20 approach where they're like, well, you know, what is, what is the overarching, if they're going to build some kind of persona or segmentation, like what are the majority of people experiencing? And then let's just go after that. Um, and it kind of gets to what you're describing because there's two things happening that's missed, which I think you've talked about. One is that it misses the individual context um, of what might work well. It's not what works, it's what are we learning might work well in particular areas, right? And and two, whole communities get you know completely um, missed over because they might fall on that 20% where it's like, we'll get to that later. Um, and and it's just a, it's just a big miss. So I'm just like, I guess I'm just appreciating what you're calling out and, um, and maybe this rise, hopefully, of the field builder role. And I'm just curious what BridgeBand is doing to elevate or amplify or, or other organizations are doing to elevate or amplify this role in this thinking. Well, firstly, I'm going to have to quote you on what you just said in my next report because love every the way that you just described how we think about it. We kind of look at the bell curve and we're like, okay, how do we solve for like this majority in the middle? And again, like that, we don't have examples of that approach getting us to actual sustainable and durable and equitable change. Um, so thank you for validating that thinking and how you just described it. I love that. Um, and like this is this is our mission at Bridgeband. This is this is my you know personal mission and passion right now because this research it's kind of like that that saying like once I, you can't unsee this thing. Like now that I've seen the power and potential of these field builders and these approaches, I like can't unsee it. And I'm like this this is what it takes to actually meet this multi crisis moment that we're in. This is what it takes. And what's so interesting is um when our last uh report came out, which was in January of 2021 about systems change leaders, a bunch of nonprofits like, you know, flooded the inbox with like, you see me, <laughs> thank you, you get it. This is the work. And we didn't have that same reception from the funding community. You know, philanthropic funders, some who are who are more at that innovative cutting edge are quite interested and want to be involved in this work. We're in community with a handful of them. And they've spoken into this research. But as we kind of push these messages out, last I spoke at Skull World Forum last year and these other opportunities to reach a broader base of philanthropic funders and business leaders as well, just met with a lot of questions um, because this feels like such a different paradigm. It feels hard and messy. Measurement is a hot button issue. How do you measure this? How do you know? Um, and power, you know, power is at play. Um, and it's hard, I think, for the philanthropic community to see exactly like how they show up in this work and what their role is. And I think that is like the hunt for the how, that is the how that we're really trying to explore right now. 
what would it take for philanthropy to let go of old paradigms and actually embrace the messiness of this work and to show up in a learning orientation and as learners to show up wanting to, you know, support those folks least heard and use their power and privilege and megaphone to elevate those voices that we don't get to hear much. Like, there's so much opportunity there. And um, it's, it's just quite different than how philanthropy operates now. On the whole, I know there are a lot of folks interested in this, but feels like we keep hearing more about barriers than about folks actually leaning in and doing it. So my my mission, like, how do I unlock, how do we unlock that? How do we actually create change there? To me, it, it, it's really inspiring to hear you talk. And I can, through our own personal experience, uh, understand the challenges you're up against, because it's back to what you said very early in the conversation. What if there were just an app we could design that would do all of this? Hey, that would be awesome, because it simplifies everything. And all you have to do is crack that one code and, and bam, you've changed the world, right? Uh, doesn't work that way. Uh, and so you're, it's part of this is a journey about getting people to think more honestly and in a somewhat more sophisticated, authentic way about the problem space and what, what it means to make a difference as opposed to try to fall in love with a point solution that seems great, try to scale that. Oh, it didn't work. Let's pick a better one. We'll just have the wrong point solution. <laughs> let's, you know, let's get a better one. And it's, I think what you're describing is like, hey, maybe that's never going to work and we need a very different mindset and approach here. Um, I have so many other directions that I want to take the conversation um, because it's it's almost like a metaphor for, for any kind of large scale change you want to drive. Um, one thing I'm, uh, I'm always curious about stories with, with like strange bedfellows. When you start looking at an ecosystem and, you know, a lot of, um, particularly in business, people like to think about um, their business in a reductive way. Hey, it's, you know, get it down to like my primary constituent and what I do in this one mechanic. And that can be helpful to a point, but it ends up oversimplifying the actual world they operate in and all the constituents you actually need in order to thrive and compete effectively. And so really succeeding means broadening that understanding your true ecosystem and sometimes inviting in the enemy, quote unquote, you know, regulators or something. Hey, what have we actually started working with government in novel ways. And it, we're an antagonistic to figure out what's driving that posture that they have. And let's work together to create a better model that's that's uh, creates good for society and enables businesses to flourish as an example. So long-winded question, but what what, what is, what's your thinking about like strange bed, bedfellows in the context of field building and driving the kind of change that you've been talking about? Well, I love that question. The first thing that came to mind is as you were talking was like, I have two kids and um, one of the things that is keeping me up at night is social media and when my kids get that phone and I have no control and can't curate and it's a really scary place. Um, and and we have um, a teen mental health crisis in this country right? And, and globally right now. And right now, like we are, I, I as a mom, I'll speak for myself, Feel like social media is the enemy. I feel like Instagram is the enemy, and I'm like, yeah, you know, regulate that shit. <laughs> like, um, it's like, but then, like, from a field building perspective, actually, the question is, what would it take for Instagram to be part of the solution and not part of the problem? What would it take for the teen mental health crisis field, which there's a bunch of organizations coming around this problem and trying to figure out what's going on? What would it take to invite, you know, who, whoever runs TikTok? I don't even know. I, I don't even know who the right people are in social media, but to invite that, like, what strange bedfellows would that be to actually have this perceived enemy or villain in the story actually now at the table generating solutions? That's what I think is really the full potential of these field building approaches. But right now there aren't incentivized, like, you know, that work is not incentivized for you know, in particular for the folks in the mental health field who are just like, it's hard enough to do what they're doing without any funding to really do the collective work they want to do, let alone to like build these bridges with massive businesses. So I love that frame of what would it take? Like, what would it take to create that more inclusive and expansive ecosystem working on teen mental health, for example? What an opportunity. I love that. Yeah, I love that framing also. It, a lot of what you're saying also gets into... Uh, the notion of co-creation. 
which comes into our work a lot, you know, it's, and, and you were, uh, I, I was seeing hints of it when you're thinking about the marginalized communities, Hey, get them involved in the process and, and ask them what they need, what, what changing the system would look like and why, um, and doing the same thing with, you know, uh, TikTok, which is owned by bike dance, for example, bring them in the, and say like, Hey, oh, Michael, we, are you not, showing off your TikTok uh, knowledge? Hey, we work in the tech space a lot. <laughs> And I'm occasionally on TikTok just to know what's going on. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah. So, uh, so love to hear your thoughts on on just the notion of co-creation in in this context of field building again and driving system change. Yeah. Um, gosh, and like, how much time do you have? <laughs> that is, like, I'll I'll give you the headline response, which is like that that is the work. Um, that is what the the, the opportunity of of field building is, where it's not about that kind of individual um, narrow view on a on an answer, but that full potential of a co-created solution which brings together all the different lenses and angles and vantage points. One of the, you know, one of the other levels to be thinking about is kind of altitude relative to these to these systems. Like there's deep work in neighborhoods, you know, in communities on some of these issues and challenges. And then there's like deep work at the federal level or right? in, the, in the national level. And so co-creation, I think, spans both different roles you might play in the field, but also what level of altitude are you seeing this problem at? And we can come up with a better solution if we see, you know, the full elephant, you know, that old metaphor um, and, and understand the, the full elephant. And so I think co-creation has to be by design and at the outset, a core principle of these these field building efforts. And then on the flip side of that is also measurement because a huge hot button topic is how do we measure it? How do we know, especially if we've co-created it, who gets, you know, who gets credit? Um, that's still a thing in a in an unfortunate world of scarce resources. Um, and so one of our, our encouragements for the philanthropic community is actually create incentives for co-creation, not competition create incentives for collaboration through these field building efforts and field catalysts are so excellent at doing that. They bring folks together, they create these opportunities and then more funding comes to the table as that work takes shape. And like, you know, ideally there's momentum and, and more funders are brought in. We're trying, I would love if you all have great stories or examples where co-creation and measurement, like this kind of new paradigm of what if we work together to solve these things? What what does excellent look like? I would love to keep that conversation going with you all as you see it from your, your work as well. I'm curious, how does this intersect with um, collective impact? You know, there was like, obviously there still is like a movement to make that work. Um, is field building just an important aspect of collective impact? Is the idea of collective impact still maybe um, something difficult to achieve because of the way we think about impact. I, I, I'm only asking because, um, I just remember it felt so big. Like I, I, I couldn't get on like, you know, the internet and not see something about collective impact maybe like five, 10 years ago. And I don't see as much about it today. Um, and I'm not sure why. Well, I think there are certainly similar principles like this importance of a common agenda, um, the backbone support mutually reinforcing work. So at kind of the theory level, I think there's a lot of commonality. We studied collective impact as part of our research, and we've we've looked to examples there um, and have learned from those efforts. Um, I think for many, collective impact uh, has meant more place-based efforts and a big focus on data, dashboards, and measurement. Um, and uh, you know, with our with our this view of field building in the systems lens, we're kind of asking a different but adjacent question, which is what would it take to solve this problem at a population level? And that's taken us to these kind of national and global fields and this broader view of ecosystems. Um, and I will say like one of the lessons we learned from studying collective impact is that in some places, I mentioned earlier this notion of like the funder crowning the prince. We heard that as an example of a pitfall from some collective impact efforts where this desire for the backbone to like do something and lead the work and get the collective impact effort going led whoever the funder or funders might be to kind of say, you nonprofit, like you need to be the backbone, do the things. And if that wasn't, you know, if that wasn't accepted in the broader ecosystem or community, or if that organization maybe didn't want it, but was in a funding crunch and needed to take to you, know, like there's a number of reasons why that would have happened. But this work, you know, can't rest on one nonprofit playing that backbone role because they were assigned it. Um, and so that's where, where our study of field catalysts, we really tried to see, you know, so what, 
what does position certain organizations to play that role and what has gotten in the way of that role um, for some? And it's certainly that kind of single funder selecting an organization that we've noted as a, a kind of watch out in this work. Are there some recent examples in these pandemic times that you can point to where uh, field building has had a, a an outsized positive effect or has has failed? I am really curious on kind of the actual pandemic health equity side, what we'll see. I don't think we we know enough right now to know exactly how this will play out. I don't think two years ago we thought we would be two years in and still in this moment of a surge and, and all of that. Um, but the, the kind of dual pandemic, the racial reckoning that we have been um, uh, observing and supporting and been involved with at Bridgepan over the last couple of years, I think we've seen tremendous efforts and progress. We study the movement for Black Lives as part of our research on systems change leaders in particular. And you know, you've heard of Black Lives Matter, um, often kind of in the forefront of the narrative. The movement for Black Lives is this network of over 150, probably more than that, um, since our research is probably now, probably now a year and a half old. Um, this massive network of organizations working at different altitudes, working in different places on different aspects of the racial justice agenda. And the Movement for Black Lives did this masterful job, is doing this masterful job of holding the agenda, learning, feeding that learning out to the community, building trusting relationships across all of these players in a place-based sense, helping funding go to the places where there's moments of ripeness and opportunity. Um, it's just been incredible to see this organization and what they've done. And I think they only started in 2016. It's like a relatively new organization. So it's even more amazing given that that um, timeline. That's a great example. Do they think of themselves as field builders? I think the word field is resonant for some and not for others. Not, I think that's what we've heard in our research and interviews. It resonates for philanthropy and that's that's where we're really focusing our, our influence and where we want to support and catalyze change. And so we use it. I think this notion of a nerve center um, is, is more resonant. And that's why we, we sometimes use that metaphor when talking about the movement for Black Lives in particular, because I think a field can have a, a more like a structured or professional connotation, because obviously there are also professional fields. Um, and so I think for the movement for Black Lives, thinking about their role as a nerve center, movement builder, other, other terms probably resonate more. So we've been talking a lot about your research, your thinking, you've you've um, tried to ask us some questions. We give a little bit of thinking and then we just go right back to you because <laughs> we're good at it. Um, we never got a chance to really get to know and have people get to know you personally. Um, so we're gonna have to bring you back on, but I would like to make sure that we, you know, just get a sense of um, just your outlook. So you've done this research. There's a way in which, you know, maybe change and impact is being uh, approached today. You've identified an opportunity. Um, maybe just share with us your sense of hope um, or lack thereof. What What is your outlook here that you've done this for, you know, um, how change could actually be approached these next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Well, firstly, I'll say on a previous uh, podcast, I got feedback that I talked really quickly and I was like, that's because I'm so passionate about this work and I just want to get all the ideas out and I'm just so excited about it. Um, and so hopefully that that passion and excitement has come through because I am hopeful. And I will also say, I love the name of your podcast because it is about the how and I'm on the hunt for the how as well. Um, and so in this next year, we're going to be launching this new research on origin stories. Because I think our, our perspective is the more we share these important stories and insights from the work, the more it'll become less fringe and we'll, we're socializing it, right? It's like, actually, this is not risky work. It would actually be risky not to be funding these leaders right now um, when we look at you know their track record and what they're doing and, and the full potential of it. Um, and so our work at Bridgeband is very much going to be in community with a small group of funders at the leading edge. I hope that community grows um, and, and a bunch of these field builders who are really in the thick of the how. Um, we sometimes refer to field building in the wild and like figuring out you know, what does that look like? What does it take? And this question of how do funders show up? And what I will say is I am hopeful because this does feel like a moment of paradigm level shifts in the social sector and in philanthropy and in business. Um, and I know you all are, are thinking deeply about stakeholder capitalism and you know these issues matter 
for all of us. Like equitable field building and systems change affects all of us as individuals. It affects business performance. There's, you know, there's so much that matters in this work. And I think there's a healthy curiosity right now. My hope is that that turns into action and more more funding flowing, more flexible funding in particular, flowing to these, these field builders and these field building efforts. Um, and I will just say, you know, we, what fuels me is collaborative work and being in community. I love this conversation. Thank you for inviting me in. And I would love to partner with folks, you all, others who are hearing this and thinking, huh, there may be something that's relevant for what I'm doing. I think we're not going to get there if we, if we keep trying to, you know, do this on our own. Um, and so would love to build more community around these ideas as we seek together to make them more, I love what you said earlier, Michael, not fringe, but actually the norm. That's awesome, Lee. Infectious optimism, grounded in research. Uh, I think you're doing really important work, and I love that you're you've shared your perspective with us. I'm excited to learn more about these origin stories. That sounds um, it sounds really useful to just understand, uh, you know, how do leaders and organizations mature into the role of field builder, and then what makes them effective uh, when they do. Um, and I see lots of connections for any kind of change that we're trying to drive, uh, you know, whether it's nonprofit or for profit. So thank you for generously spending your time with us and openly exploring these ideas. Really appreciate it. I think our listeners will too. And I look forward to having you back on. And maybe we can get into your earlier question about uh, co-creation and examples that actually work. What makes that work well and, and make it more attractive? Well, thank you all for all you do. Thank you for exploring these questions. Well, that was a fantastic conversation, Michael. I feel like we could have kept going just as usual. Um, lots there. And I think our mission now is to see if we can distill down, uh, you know, what are the big takeaways from that? What, what stuck out uh, for you? You know, I think for me, um, I would just start with the idea again that you have to learn your way. Like that's my theme through the whole show. You have to learn your way into what works. And, you know, Leah really talked about that there isn't just one way to or one solution to scale but that we might need a variety of solutions uh, along the way and that's just really important so that stuck out for me yeah i mean um building out that there's this this concept of silver buckshot instead of silver bullets that large complex problems like climate change anything dealing with the system and as we know most things <laughs> deal with systems requires a variety of solutions to be coordinated and directed and that these field builders, whoever they actually are, are those that recognize that and are trying to do their part in identifying and coordinating, marshalling these different uh, aspects of the solution in organizations. So along with that, I think one of the things that you know really stuck out would be also the importance of a field builder understanding their ecosystem, understanding who are the players, the stakeholders, uh, what matters to them and building the kind of authentic relationships needed to coordinate um, these disparate activities. Yeah, I agree. And it made me um, wonder more about who are these people in organizations and, and how do they merge? I'm excited to learn more from Leah. As she does her orange, origin story research. Um, and I wonder if field builders even think about themselves that way, or they're simply focusing on what they think works more effectively and they're thinking beyond their organization and just adopting sort of a stakeholder driven approach where they're willing to partner uh maybe make strange bedfellow relationships in order to drive collective impact yeah i think that's interesting they kind of become the how people like they may or may not be necessarily content experts i don't know um but they certainly have a point of view of how organizations can rethink um what they do, but how they work together, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, and I think about that in the context of, of business and uh, the transferability of these ideas. If you're actually trying to drive a vision and have greater impact by activating your stakeholder ecosystem, these field building ideas seem very relevant. And is there an active role 
a specific company or organization could take. In that, do they uh, seek out partners who actually can satisfy that role and they just play a role within the ecosystem? I think they're interesting questions to explore. Which I think gets to my third takeaway, which is, you know, the importance of a field builder holding a vision for change and having that as a starting point or a future that they pull towards. And, you know, Leah made, I think, um, an explicit uh, comment around not only holding a vision for change, but taking equitable action towards it. And so that gets to what you're just sharing there is, is being able to really center how to rethink um, maybe the relationships or the power dynamics uh, to allow for these coalitions to actually form. I agree. And the last thing that stuck out for me, which you were honing in on, is the measurement side of all of this and how tricky it can be. So if you acknowledge field building is a really viable and important approach, uh, how do you know whether or not it's working and to what degree? And how do you get all of these various constituents to align on some set of metrics? Or do you need to? Do you just sort of hold your own, let them pursue their own pieces of it in their own way and measure it in their own way, but you're looking at some larger outcomes and progress towards it. I feel like with most conversations, we're left feeling um, maybe some uplift, but more questions. This this hunt <laughs> that how continues. I agree. And this, uh, the notion of a field builder, just this role, I think is an important piece of the puzzle, but lots more questions to ask uh, and answers to uncover. Without a doubt. This has been fun. I appreciate just each conversation, getting a chance to grow with you and learn more, um, you know, just about uh, what it means to, you know, be on an impact journey and, and, you know, rethink business. Same here, Chris. All right. Well, all right. Let's thanks. do it again next session, huh? Sounds good. The Hunt for the How is a production of Intentional Futures, a strategy and design studio based in Seattle, Washington. This episode was produced and mixed by Gedney Barclay, who also created the original music. Our lead researcher and production assistant is Malia Nakamura. And I'm your host, Michael Dix. I encourage you to email me with any thoughts and questions to michael at intentionalfutures.com. You can subscribe to The Hunt for the How on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iTunes. Thanks for listening.